Hi, Matt. Hi, I'm Kira. And you're listening to Bodywise. Kira, what's Bodywise all about? Bodywise is you and me discussing some things that don't get an awful lot of discussion time. We're looking from a primary care perspective, a GP and a nurse, and we're talking about things that people just don't talk enough about. And this week we're talking about depression. Why are we talking about depression, Kira? Oh, it's such an important topic, isn't it? And a difficult one, and one that doesn't get talked about an awful lot. I think we're talking about it a bit more, aren't we, than we used to, Mm. but I'm not sure what we're doing about it. What do you think? I think depression, I think one of the things we want to want to do with this program is to talk about things that just aren't spoken about. And I think depression is one of those things. I, I think that as a society, we still haven't quite got there when it comes to depression. Um, I think that we're probably better. I think our generation is probably better than our parents' generation. But I still think, and certainly as men, I, I just don't think we're good enough at talking about how we feel uh, and talking about getting help when we need it. So I think... Mm-hmm. It's important to talk about depression. I don't think we talk about it enough as people. Sure. And when we made our list of the topics that we wanted to cover, this was a high up one for you. And you said, I want to talk about depression. and I want to talk about depression in men. Mm. Because we, we see men quite often quite late on, don't we? When things have got really bad. Or when we um, see really tragic... Um, we hear tragic stories about people who have, co- who have completed suicide. And the vast majority of them are men. Mm. What's that all about? Well, definitely, as, as my in my experience as a GP, I think women come to us much sooner. And I think the reason women come to us much sooner is because women talk to each other about their feelings and their mood. And I think that those conversations that women have leads to, you know, a conversation to say, look, you need to go to pop to your GP. I, I think as men, we don't have those supportive social networks yet. Um, and I think that is definitely a problem. I think we're just not quite there. And I, I just don't think we have those supportive social networks. And as I said, the suicide rate amongst men is much, much higher than the suicide rate amongst women. And, and that's just simply a fact. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that needs to be spoken about. And I think it's absolutely key that we as a society address it. And I think the more we talk about depression, the more there's a chance that there's going to be somebody out there listening, whether it's your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, or, or, or the listener themselves that might say, wait a minute, that sounds like what I'm suffering from. And it's like a light bulb moment where people say those feelings that those people on the radio are describing, that's me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's a difficult topic, isn't it? I mean, you and I um, laugh quite a lot when we're doing this show and there's there's a lot of banter goes backwards and forwards. And this uh, talking to you about this before and saying it's hard. Uh, it's, uh, how do you make a conversation about depression um, interesting and light and easy to listen to and, and maybe you don't maybe you just don't make it easy and light mm. and easy to listen to maybe it is hard to listen to mm. it is hard to listen to it's, it's a difficult topic to it's a it's a difficult topic to, to, to talk about because it affects people and there's still that taboo around it but you know, I, I often find, and I think you're the exact same, here that often people will come forward and they'll say, I think there's something wrong with my mood. And then there's nothing that comes after that. And it's one of those consultations where, as a GP, a lot of the time people come into me and the challenge is to get them to stop talking. When it comes to depression, it's the opposite. And most people 
are very very slow to, to bring information forward and a lot of the time it ends up being like a bit of a kind of a question and answer session where I, I say I you know for example if Kira came in and sat in front of me and, and didn't want to say anything beyond that I'd say Kira, well look what's your mood like rate your mood on a scale of 1 to 10 10 being amazing 1 being awful are you crying without reason um, how's your self confidence what's your self esteem like uh, you know are you having negative thoughts at the moment I ask everyone have you thought about killing yourself and the number of people that when you ask them that question they look at you and they say yeah I've thought about it you know mm. and no one else obviously would have asked them that and then you kind of move on to the biological symptoms where sometimes you can have a bit of fun with patients so what I say you know depression slows everything down it slows your mood down but it can have a huge impact on your physical symptoms so people who have depression it can have a big impact on their sleep so they might sleep too little they might sleep too much um, they might have poor energy levels it can cause and one of the, the things I ask everyone is their libido and I'm not obsessed with the libido but I think it's you it's, like it's, to make sure it's in every show don't you <laughs> no but I think it's it's a really uh, important indicator of health and again people that suffer from depression it can have a massive impact on their libido and the reason I ask people is it can have an impact on their relationship and often mm. you're asking them a question and it's giving them that opportunity to give you the answer when they never thought you'd be able to bring it up so yeah that, that's generally how my consultations go I've, I personally have to put in quite a lot of um, like protective habits to stay well. So mm. um, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later with our guests, but um, it's really important for me to stay well. And I talk about it like going to the gym, like you go to the mind gym, right? So you, you're not going to stay strong in your body mm. um, if you don't put any effort in. And I feel like you need to go to the mind gym to keep a healthy mind. So doing things like mindfulness... Um, making sure I go to bed at a decent time and get up at a decent time and mm. like filling myself with uh, nutritious food mm. and spending time with my family is a super important part of keeping well for me. So first up, we're going to hear from Dr. Justin McGrain, who's a consultant psychiatrist and who trained in psychology before he did psychiatry. And we're going to hear his perspectives on depression and what his thoughts are following 10 years of experience in dealing with the topic. now we have uh, Jocelyn McGrain. So Jocelyn McGrain is a good friend of mine and also happens to be a psychiatrist, but was a psychologist before that. So is probably the perfect person to talk to when it comes to depression. Um, and Jocelyn, I suppose what we've been covering lately is we've been covering topics that people, I suppose, might have difficulty talking about. So we've talk, covered the menopause, we've, we've covered addiction recently. And one of the ones myself and Kira wanted to cover was depression. And I still think, although we've made a huge amount of progress, I still feel we're not quite there yet when it comes to talking about depression openly. I mean, would you agree with that or what, what is your experience of that? Yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, look, there's still a huge stigma around um depression and i suppose mental illness and mental disorders and i suppose mental health difficulties in general um i think we've come a long way like you said um and there's a big push you know i think in general for people to talk about things but i think the we need to probably go beyond talking and how I suppose you can actually help people mm. um, and direct people to the right ways to address their difficulties. I'm going to ask you the, the million dollar question, something that I get asked at work every single day. Like, what is depression and how do I know if I'm depressed? Yeah, I suppose 
that is I, I'm I I don't doubt that you get asked that relentlessly, Matthew. But um yeah, I suppose depression is a common and treatable illness. And I suppose most of us can feel sad or miserable at times and then you know we can get recover quite quickly from our sadness uh, especially if there's other good things in our life but some people then do continue to feel extremely miserable for long periods of time even though there's not really a clear reason why they're feeling that way and they may feel it difficult to get through the day um, and I suppose from my perspective um, i I get concerned when I see what is like moderate to severe depression, which is really uh, a kind of miserable low mood with a couple of other features that go on for at least two weeks. And I suppose really starts affecting your day to day life. Like, uh, you know, that's it might be obvious to to loved ones um, to if you're a kid, to teachers, to parents um, and or to work colleagues or starts impacting on your work that's when i suppose it tips over from general sadness which is a normal human emotion that we all should go through and then i suppose major depressive disorder and um, and we can sometimes jump too quickly to cause call sadness depression and i think that's one of the ways that um as a society with you know the greater chat around mental health difficulties that we don't lose sight of the fact that sadness is part of the human condition, but also not to ignore the type mm. of sadness that has really dipped into more severe depression or moderate depression sure. and, and really address that. So if for someone who might be worried about a family member or friend, how would they know those differences between sadness and depression? How, how What would the symptoms look like? for someone that was depressed rather than just um, having a difficult time or, or feeling sad at the moment? Yeah, I suppose it can be quite hard for family members to pick out the differences. So I really do empathise with people that are, are trying to figure that out with a loved one who's going through that. Um, I suppose the big things that, let's say, the NICE guidelines would say is if someone stops enjoying things that they usually enjoy you know if they're really sociable person and they withdraw into themselves if they're usually you know doing sports or they're um like i don't know they like going to cinema or whatever and they just kind of stop doing those things or they're it becomes clear that they're not as into those things suddenly without any clear reason why um the other things i suppose that are i suppose the big red flags to look out for is what we used to call, um, I suppose, physical signs of depression. That would be if someone has had unexplained or unintended, like loss of weight or unintended, like putting on weight. Um, and then with that kind of up and down in their appetite that really has persisted. Mm -hmm. And then these other things where they lack of energy and all those things go and um, in terms of that, there'll be the kind of big things that just sure. begin to wonder whether that's separating it out. I, I always ask people yeah. about libido, uh, Joss, and I always say, what's your libido like? And people look at me like they've got two heads. But that is something that we see. And quite commonly, I'd have people come into me and they're like, you know, my libido or my sex drive is, is, is low. That's something we see in people from depression, isn't it? That, that that can be a symptom that people can attribute to that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And 
Um, I think it shows that there's a big stigma around that because I didn't throw that one out as one of my first ones. But really, that is something to try and explore um, as well with people. If someone does offer that up, you really have to be thinking if it's if if you're seeing those other features with it, you really want to be wondering if it is like mm. uh, a depressive episode. And it's really hard for people to open up about that kind of thing, as you know. And that brings us very nicely onto the treatments for depression. Um, and I suppose one of the big concerns, certainly I see in GP, is that people don't like talking about depression because they're worried that it's going to lead to medication. Obviously, you're an expert in the fields. Could, could you kind of really simply explain to us you know when somebody needs to, to to start an antidepressant when someone doesn't and when counseling enough is alone how do you make that decision um yeah i suppose yeah it's so i've been saying that it's trying to i suppose distinguish whether the depression is mild moderate or, or a severe episode so those milder cases of depression which you may have those feelings of sadness and maybe you might have one um, or two or three of the other features um, that I've been talking about already, like the sleep disturbance, that the loss of energy. Um, and th- those people will probably most likely respond well to, you know, not um, an intervention that isn't medication based. So that's, you know, some form of talking therapy. Um, but when it gets to, the more moderate or severe depression, then the evidence is there that you need a two-pronged approach, really, that you need the antidepressant plus um, one of the forms of talking therapy as well. Um, and the combination of both will hopefully get you through that um, depressive episode. And if someone's listening now and they're thinking, God, that, that sounds like I might be suffering from depression Again, I suppose the advice that myself and Kiri has been giving everyone is the first thing to do is to pick up the phone and make an appointment with your GP. Would you agree with that? I, I suppose I I would, because the GP is probably best placed to distinguish mild, moderate, and severe. But mm. you know, at at the milder level, going to a therapist or going to a counselor in the first instance um, may also be the right thing to do. And I would often um, you know advise people to do that as well as going to their GP and to. I suppose get the ball rolling in terms of that but from a safety point of view I suppose it's it's best going to the GP and a counsellor and therapist obviously can't um, start you on medication whereas a GP can So that was that was a, a really interesting uh, contribution from, from Dr McGrain what were your thoughts on that? Oh, it's it's a really hard job isn't it to round up as much as you can about depression in such a short conversation um, there'll be more to listen to on our podcast for sure but um, it was great just to get a good outline from him about uh, what to look out for and what we can do mm, for yeah. friends and family. And hopefully people will have taken home some useful information from that. Kira, who do we have up next? I was very lucky to speak to a couple of local people who were happy to talk about their experiences um, with having depression. <laughs> So, uh, I can't remember when it was, but David Johnson was doing the TT on uh, BMW and um, the run up the TT, I was down. And the way I can ex- explain it is there's just no joy in my life. So whatever I did, 
wouldn't bring me joy. So people say, oh, yeah, if you say you're depressed, people say, oh, you just need to go out for a run. Yeah, I'll go out for a run, and then I'm fine. And it's like, right, okay, I tried going for a run, and I wasn't fine, so that didn't work. So, yeah, I was doing stuff. Joe, my wife, was always good. Like, she'd always realise that something was wrong or something wasn't right. So it was coming up to TT week, and I knew I was doing that. I was going to help David Johnson in the pits, and I was all excited about that. But Joe said to me, are you looking forward to TT? And I said, no, because I knew, I knew I was excited about it and stuff, but I wasn't really looking forward to it because I knew the outcome wasn't going to make me feel any better than I did. No matter how much I enjoyed myself, I'd still feel like crap straight after. So Joe um, told me to go and see the doctor. So I went to see the doctor, explained everything to him, and he put me on these pills. But the thing with the pills was they uh, made me proper anxious. And I don't think I've ever felt like anxiety. I never knew what anxiety meant. People would talk about anxiety and I'd be like, no, I don't, don't think I've ever had that before. So I jumped in my van and I went from work to the grandstand to help set up for the TT. And I was worried my windscreen was going to fall out. I was worried I was going to run out of diesel. I was worried I was breaking the speed limit. I was going to get stopped by the police. And I got to the grandstand. I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I had injuries. I hurt my knee, so I couldn't play football. I then got a bad hip, so I couldn't play rugby. I could hardly ride my motorbikes and stuff like that. That that all like went on, I think, to bring on the depression. The fact that I couldn't get out and do the things I wanted to. And then the doctor about my knee was saying oh yeah you should try cycling and I was like oh cycling is so boring I don't want to go cycling um, that kind of all all like mushroom clouded or snowballed I think to a point where <clears throat> it got on top of me um, I went snowboarding I remember going snowboarding with um, a couple of my friends and their sons and my son and we all went away, and that snowboarding holiday, this was before I was on the pills, is just like a blur, and I love snowboarding, it's amazing, amazing time of the year, going away and stuff like that, and I love it, but I may as well not have gone, because I don't remember, hardly remember the trip, um, it was almost like a chore, getting up to go snowboarding in the morning, I knew we, we were going, I knew we had to go, and I'd be like, right, come on, let's go, and I'd get up, and I'd be like, Pfft. Because I get back down after being the lift. Should have been full of endorphins. Should have been loving life. But just nothing there. Meh. So I took them pills. And then from kind of that TT on, I was sound. I'd have ups and downs. My mood would go up. Sometimes I'd be loving life. My mood would go down. But before I took the pills, there was no um, no change in my mood whatsoever. Um, I'd take the kids out on the motorbikes. I'd think to myself, what can I do to make the kids happy? So I was like, right, I'll take them out on the motorbikes. So I loaded up all the motorbikes into the van and I didn't put my own motorbike in because I was not going to get anything out of it, whether I brought it or not. I was still going to feel exactly the same. And then my daughter said to me, Dad, why aren't you putting your bike in? I said, oh, don't worry about it. I don't need it. She said, yeah, but if you don't put your bike in, you won't have fun. And I was thinking to myself, if I do put it in, I won't have fun either. So it didn't make 
sense. And that was one of the turning points where I was like, yeah, I do need to go to the doctor. So I'm still taking the pills. Um, sertraline, I take. Um, taking medication for your mental health. Did you like for a lot of people is stigma attached to starting medication and they feel that resistance to it. Did you go through that? Yeah, you get that. Everyone's like, oh, you need, don't need to take pills. You just need to go out for a run. And if you've got that chemical imbalance in your brain, there's there's no way to get out of it. And mm. that was one of my arguments. So I was like, you know, I've got a good job. I've got a good wife, house. I've got the kids. I was like, why? Why am I depressed? There's no need for me to be depressed. So then you start trying to fight it, thinking, right, okay, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other. But if you've got that chemical imbalance in your brain, no matter how much runs you go on no matter what things you do it it, it won't sort itself out mm. so once i got over that stigma oh i had a good <clears throat> doctor as well and he was like good to talk to um and he, he like understood so i was just talking to him and he's like yeah and i think that's really interesting and a, and a good point that you can things can be going all right for you and then you end up judging yourself even more because you don't feel like you've got the right to be depressed because yeah. yeah, people are so much good. worse off than you People are so much worse off, and yeah, you think if anyone should be depressed, it should be her down the road with you know <laughs> whatever. But yeah, you can be if you've got that chemical imbalance in your brain. If your mix isn't right in your carburetor, it's not it's not going to work. But putting it out there that these pills um, changed my life. I can really empathise with that feeling of trying to go out and do all the fun stuff that's supposed to bring fun, and actually. It feels completely pointless because n mm. none of that joy is being brought forward. And actually the huge amount of effort that you can put into like faking it till you make it, but mm. that making it part not actually appearing um, makes a lot of sense and, and definitely rings some bells for me. Um, if you had a pal who was in the same situation that you were in, are in, um, what would your advice be? My advice would be talk to me, but then um, just talk to the doctor. Go in, talk to the doctor, tell him how you feel, and um, yeah, take it from there. Like the doctor was sound. It was Doctor Waldrum, it was in Ramsey, and he was sound. You know, I just I hadn't really talked to anyone about it before. I spoke to him. I want to take my motorbike out with the kids. I want to go out on my push bike. I want to go and play football and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, you enjoy life more and you don't have that grey cloud hanging over you, stopping you doing things, stopping you living your best life. You've had a problem with your hip and needed to have a hip replacement um, in your 30s, which is quite unusual. Um, but I can... I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine that when you had a bad hip and you needed to have a hip replacement, at no point were you judging yourself about having to have that therapy or take the pain relief or what have I done wrong in my life yeah. to, to have a bad hip. And can you see the differences between you um, having a, uh, a bad hip and needing a hip replacement in your 30s and having an episode of depression and maybe how you might have judged yourself through the two different um, illnesses? Yeah, that's it. It's Your brain's just an organ. I don't know if it is, but it's a part of your body. So if you've got a broken brain, you know, it needs fixing. Duran spoke so eloquently about what it's like having depression. Do you know, Duran's such an interesting person to chat to because 
um, I always think of him as someone who's really, you know, full of the joys and has such an exciting life. And um, it's a real indicator to me of how it's a, such a non-discriminatory illness. You know, anyone can be affected. Mm. Thanks for talking um, with me today, Jay. Could you tell me a little bit about what you do in your company and also um, your background in healthcare. Yeah, of course. So uh, my background is as a mental health nurse and I proudly, I'm proud of the fact I trained here on the Isle of Man a few years back now. Um, and I also, since then, have qualified as a cognitive behavioural therapist, which is a, a type of one-to-one or group-based talking therapy. Um, and I specialise normally in working with, with young people or children and parents um, but with adults too, I suppose. Um, and I also uh, deliver mental health first aid training, which is a, a piece of training that can qualify people as mental health first aiders. So essentially people that can respond helpfully to somebody in distress. Uh, and a big part of me actually becoming an instructor was the fact that one of my friends who was also a mental health nurse, uh, not on the Isle of Man, um, died by suicide. And since then I, I realised that actually it's not just mental health professionals, nurses, doctors that need to be competent in helping people when they're distressed uh, and depressed or anxious or thinking of suicide, for example. But actually every single one of us needs to play a role in preventing suicide and and just feeling confident in helping other people. So often um, people don't want to say anything because they uh, they feel too nervous to or they're worried to say the wrong thing. And actually we just need to be able to have a little bit of confidence in ourselves to have have those conversations and start up a bit of a chat so the the first aid course that you run the mental health first aid course that's something for um is that something for managers and healthcare professionals well it can be a whole range of people so i deliver a couple of different types of courses different lengths uh, but there's an, generally there's an adult version and a youth focused version so the adult would be for Anybody that works maybe professionally with, uh, with adults who work maybe a, a carer, um, healthcare professional, but it also could be a line manager, HR manager is a really common person that might come on to one of these courses. Or it might even be somebody that simply wants to be um, somebody in their community that can help others. Um, it could be, you know, we're sitting currently outside Peel Swing Pool. It could be, you know, a coach at a swing pool or it could be somebody that um, might work on a reception of a, of a uh, of a company uh, and then the youth course is perhaps more focused around uh, youth volunteers I don't know for example scout leaders guide leaders or it might be uh, teachers or youth workers I mean it it sounds like when we talk about how um, mental health problems can affect anybody really and we and there's so much that's not talked about that this is something we could all benefit from doing really I mean, absolutely. Every single one of us, every single one of us on the Isle of Man, in the world, um, everywhere you look, every single one of us has mental health. It's just a part of being human. Um, Sometimes people think it's like this new thing that's been invented in the last 20 or 30 years. But (laughs) if you look back through, you know, show me any story, any play, any movie, any book where mental health or psychology isn't a theme. Look at Romeo and Juliet and look at the, the themes of of love and lust and uh, risk-taking adolescence and, and tell me that mental health isn't something that's always been there. Um, it's something that's ingrained in human behaviour, in psychology, um, and it's something we all need to be able to respond with. 
and often the first day of the course that I deliver I'll, I'll ask people I'll say right put your hand up in the last month probably isn't a very good example for radio but put your hand up in the last month if you've ever if sorry in the last month if you've uh, responded to somebody in physical pain or you've been a physical first aider and very few people will have put their hand up even if they've done a course every three years for the last 20 if you ask right put your hand up if you've responded to somebody that's been upset anxious anxious upset um about an event upset about a particular situation almost every person puts the hand up and that really tells me that we all need these competencies a lot more regularly than somebody that's trained in physical first aid although that is of course very important as well if um so bad at concentrating i'm just looking at the state of that bird that's trotting along there or, <laughs> and i'm like what i mean that's some physical distress isn't it, it probably needs some <laughs> crow first aid or whatever um sorry <laughs> <clears throat> i i've i've lost my thread here um it is it's interesting actually because there's how often do people we also say like i didn't know what to say you know, and it's easy to sometimes walk on by because you didn't know how to respond. And I think, to when I've spoken to someone who um, who's grieving, I think that's a really good example. And they say about people who haven't, who have walked past them, or have crossed the road, or ignored them, because they didn't know what to say. They didn't know whether they should acknowledge the fact that they'd lost a loved one or not acknowledge it and they got so flustered they just walked past and didn't say a word and actually the the intention the well-meaning intention can be there but it can be quite crucial can't it what you say and is is that is that what the mental health first aid course looks at yeah for sure and it sort of makes just think about it helps us reflect on the on the point that what is it that's stopping me having that conversation and often we'll say to people oh or we'll, we'll sort of think that I don't want to say that in case I upset them and actually it's very rarely about upsetting them that's the fear it's more often the fact that I don't want to I, I personally feel anxious about this it's not about their feelings it's often about the person that's responding not the person you're responding to and sometimes the way I'll sort of coach people through this is to think right feel the fear recognize that it's a difficult conversation so feel the fear and do it anyway have that conversation and um, a wonderful speaker and author uh, Brené Brown uh, from America she uses the phrase um I'm, I'm so uh, sorry that's what editing's for <laughs> yeah I do this pause. all the time I get bored of my own sentence and drift <laughs> off <laughs> no I get what's the phrase there um So a wonderful author called Brené Brown, um, who speaks a lot about empathy and the power of empathy and, the, and trying to understand what empathy actually is. Um, she speaks and says, well, actually, what we can say is, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Google, Google it quick. Yeah. Um, why, why my brain, why is my brain not working? Does that happen to you as well? All the time, especially yeah. if somebody's put a microphone in front yeah. of my face I think I use this like all the time <laughs> um. that was it 
so a wonderful author uh, called Brené Brown from America, she, uh, she speaks a lot about empathy. And one of the things she encourages people to say or suggests, you know, find your own words for this, but is to say, I'm, I don't know what to say right now, but I'm so glad you've told me. And it's this idea of we don't have to have something prepared, ready to, ready to say to somebody. We don't have to come out with some eloquent life lesson or some massive profound thing it's sometimes it's about just recognizing that this is really awful and there's no you know you don't have to put a positive spin on it there's no need for that it often makes people feel worse it's often kind of just trying to deflect the sadness from them Mm. Uh, and we just recognize it yeah this is awful and i'm really sorry to hear that and i'm really glad you've told me i'm really glad we can talk about this and you don't have to kind of provide an answer or a solution to this person you just need to be in that space with them and sit with them through that. Um, and that takes a lot to tolerate as well. You've got to connect with something about about this person that you can relate to and, and get on their level. Um, another thing that often gets in the way is this need to kind of share our own stories as well. Uh, and sometimes that's appropriate. Very often, actually, we just need to kind of keep our own opinions and ideas to ourselves yeah. and just hear this person out and hear hear what they've got to say, really. And we don't have to respond with anything particularly clever or wonderful. You, um, as well as running your mental health first aid courses, you're also a cognitive behavioural therapist. Could you tell us a bit about what that is um, and the kind of person that that would help? Absolutely, yeah. So cognitive behavioural therapy, um, it's a type of talking therapy that essentially uh, has evolved over the last 50 years or so. um, And it if we break it down into essentially if we break our mental health down into four areas we think about emotions so happy sad anger disgust um uh fear anxiety that type of thing so there are our emotions we've got these massive physiological feelings that happen in our body all the time so when it comes to anxiety it might be the the racing heart it might be the sweaty palms for example Uh, when we think about our thoughts so that's also the way we talk about ourselves and it also it could be how we um, process our day it could be oh what am I going to have for dinner later through to beliefs about ourselves that are deep and quite profound and and shape the way we see the world Uh, and then the last thing is the behavior so the things we do or don't do so a behavior could be going for a walk it could be uh, avoiding a social situation it could be delaying replying to a text for two days it could be um making sure that you reply to every single text as quickly as possible you know so and so our mental health is a combination of those kind of four things essentially and they they all bounce off each other so a particular behavior makes changes how you feel emotionally maybe triggers some physical feelings and then some thoughts might come along as well Um, And it all kind of mixes and matches between those four areas, essentially. Uh, And cognitive behavioural therapy, in a nutshell, is to look at those four areas and learn ways of um, either coming up with alternative behaviours, for example, or alternative thoughts, through to trying to change some of the physiological feelings that we have. Uh, So, for example, if we think about thoughts, it's about breaking down what we think and how we think and trying out different ways of coaching ourselves through situations or trying to pull apart these maybe concrete thoughts that we might have that might be, for example, really negative or really drastically um, dangerous predictions about the future. And we try and break them down and look at the evidence for those thoughts and trying to we try and mould and shape our thoughts going forward in a more helpful and healthy way. 
And, and then when it comes to the physiological side, so that might be about trying to physically calm the physical responses to anxiety. It might also be trying to boost our energy levels. It might be looking at the, it might be looking at what we eat, how we sleep, uh, what we drink. Um, and then when it comes to the behaviors, it might be t trying out or testing new behaviors. Um, you know, it might be going to take part in something or volunteering. Um, and essentially CBT looks at those areas as a way in to change how we feel on a day-to-day -day basis. How long does it take someone to make those changes using CBT? Oh, that's a brilliant question and uh, it really depends on the person. It also depends, so like we can all change how we feel by using CBT approaches and that might be somebody that's doing really well and actually they want to um, increase their confidence in this particular activity or let's say they've got a uh, a phobia so cbt a really classic way of dealing with a phobia so it could be somebody that's quite happy and well generally but wants to make a life change or it could be to somebody that is severely unwell uh, with a mental health illness uh, and that might take a bit longer and they might need uh, other approaches alongside cbt as well so it's a really um, broad spectrum depending on the person and depends on what the goals are as well cbt is very much about finding out what that person wants setting a goal and then working towards that specific goal it's not like a therapy session where you just talk and talk for you know 20 30 40 sessions uh, it's quite specific and, and meaningful in that way um, and and sort of a general rule of thumb for somebody accessing cognitive behavioral therapy might be between 12 and 20 one hour 50 minute sessions that's a general idea and if that was something that um some a listener wanted to If we had somebody listening who wanted to explore cognitive behavioural therapy, how would they access that on the Isle of Man? So that's as in how they access it as a patient? or um, Yeah, so like a listener is like, actually my head's wrecked. I want CBT. Oh, listen, what got you, yeah. I? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, like got a, listen, yeah, yeah. a radio yeah. listener. Yeah. Um, how could one of our listeners who might... Um, think that they would benefit from CBT access it here on the island? Well there's a whole range of options really and it depends uh, how long they uh, how long they've been thinking about therapy um, Sorry. so it depends really on, on what they're hoping to access I suppose um, you know there's so many things that they can access online now uh, both actual therapy but also there's lots of materials so it's it's worth always doing a bit of research around cbt because it you know it might suit some people it might not suit others so it's worth doing your research first and there's loads of self-help books and and things that might be a good first first point to start with um, and then there's also options through both um uh, manx care but also through third sector charities too and um, so it's certainly worth having a little look around um I know we've already done a program recently about uh, about the pressures on GP surgeries, and that's often mm. the kind of first point of access. But um, they often have a directory or a, a ways into uh, therapy from that point. So people can start by reaching out to their GP, and they can explore the idea of seeking cognitive behavioural therapy that way. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The GP, and there's also routes um, people often don't take up the offer of. For example. Um, Many companies, and I appreciate not every company, have things such as employee assistance programs. And actually, generally, if we look across the board, um, people don't access those kind of options soon enough, or they never do. Uh, I was working with a company not based on the Isle of Man um, in, the, in recent months, 
and they you know they have about 70,000 staff on their books and they had such a f small percentage of people accessing those type of programs it was really shocking um, so there are opportunities that we sometimes don't think about yeah that's right actually because um, for a lot of people um, private healthcare is part of the employee package isn't it and private healthcare can um, very frequently include seeking um, different styles of psychological therapies etc etc yeah absolutely you know it's a whole there's a whole range of opportunities for people to access and if we if we think more locally about our, our own healthcare provision here um, uh, it's worth thinking about uh, referrals to mental health services community well-being service and um, there's lots of different services on the Isle of Man that, that may be able to offer offer support um, the initial thing that most services offer is a, an assessment to basically understand what it is that this person needs, what, what do they want, what are their goals, um, and, and how severe a difficulty it is as well will depend on which service they, they might get allocated to. Um, a question, there's obviously, across, across the Alman and the UK, there's obviously pressures with waiting lists and waiting times, and people will often say, well, you know, there's a, I don't know, I was working with somebody uh, recently in the Midlands and they said, well, there's a, a year wait for me to access uh, CBT. And I said, well, how? Yes, that's that's unacceptable. It should be quicker than that. We know that. Um, but actually, how long have you been experiencing depression for? And they said five years. And actually, it was a case of, well, what would have happened if you'd, ref you know, if you'd been able to have that referral mm. two years into that mm. episode of depression or two years mm. into this period of time? They would have been seen a long time ago. And, you know, sometimes um, people don't refer because of that waiting list, but actually end up struggling for longer than it would have been yeah. to be seen, if that makes sense. So despite the waiting lists, still go down that route. Uh, don't be put off by that because actually it's it's really worth it in the long run. If um, if anybody listening would like to access your mental health first aid courses, where can they look? Uh, so you can look on my website, mentalhealthbuildingblocks.co.uk um, and also reach out to me on, on social media. Thanks so much, Jay, for talking to us today. It's been brilliant. Let's have a quick fire round. Quick fire round, question and answers with Jay. Um, no pressure, hey? <laughs> Answer these questions. Um, why do men suffer more with depression? Really good question. Uh, I suppose uh, they, they do statistically, and, but also we only know based on the amount of people that come forward and the amount of research that's done and mental health in general is under-researched, underfunded, and also so many people in our society don't feel able to come forward that, that we, we get a good idea from research, but it's, it's limited. So the, the picture is actually probably a lot worse than we even expect, sadly. Um, in general, uh, when we look at depression, we need to think about the things that maybe have started that. So it might have been uh, some sort of loss or change or transition. So uh, a bereavement, for example, is a really common one. Uh, a loss of job, a loss of employment or change in employment. Um, a big one is men in their 30s and 40s, a really common time for a divorce or a relationship breakdown as well. So, so often some clear triggers. And then when it comes to depression, it's about what keeps depression going. So when it comes to depression, people uh, will do less of the things that are meaningful to them. 
which means that their mood drops, their motivation drops, their energy drops, which means that they become more depressed. They, their mood gets lower and lower. And that means that they've got less energy and it goes around in this vicious cycle. So it's, we also need to look at what, what's maybe brought me to this point where I'm feeling the way I am, but also what is it that's keeping me there? What's keeping my mood and my energy levels low? And is that something that men are less likely to talk about or what's what is it meaning that men have worse outcomes statistically than women yeah again it's interesting different different ideas uh, through the research um we know that uh there may be an increased stigma or, or discrimination as well around male mental health where we don't feel able to talk to each other I, I remember doing a session recently uh, with men working construction and there was this kind of running commentary from people like oh this doesn't happen here you know this doesn't you know this doesn't affect us and what actually happened was one of the guys came forward and said I've I've been depressed for about five years and I've been on antidepressants and everybody's jaw dropped and there was just this silence in the room because this room of maybe 10 15 blokes working in construction nobody had a clue that this guy had experienced depression for so long and it just broke um it just broke the the kind of stigma for these people in this room what if um there's a man listening who thinks you know what i'm not much of a talker i don't i don't really want to chat about my mental health is is cbt something that could still benefit them yeah absolutely you know it doesn't have to be always about talking it could be about doing you know one of the brilliant things about depression is it, it reduces what we do in our day-to-day -day lives and one of the ways we can counter that is by finding out what gives them a sense of value and purpose and meaning and trying to increase those behaviors trying to increase the things that give them that sense of purpose and pleasure um, and by doing that we can reduce the amount of de depression they're currently experiencing and also boost their mood if um some quick fire round run out of things to ask you <laughs> um if you've got depression and you've also got substance use problems, um, can you still seek uh, CBT help? Yeah, you should be able to. There may be a need for somebody to access more specialist support. Um, so it may be that the complexities involved with both a addictions problem and also depression may mean that um, some people may not be qualified to support that person but in general yeah you should be able to access talking therapy um, and actually there's a whole CBT cognitive behavioral therapy um, protocols and ways of delivering treatment to people with addictions so CBT can be applied um, and focused in on an addiction related problem or it can be focused in on the depression or a bit of both sometimes as well. What if you're so depressed that you um can't brush your own teeth you don't have the motivation to change your socks how on earth can you rock up for therapy in that situation do you know what absolutely it's, it's so challenging for people to be able to to be able to do that and when they're at that point in time we really lean on the support of friends and family to be able to care for that person and, and support them and and that's where things such as um, when people have a limited social 
network, a limited family support, it really detriments, it really, it's really, really detrimental for them because there's just not that kind of pickup or that kind of hands-on support that that person might need. And there should also be, we, and we need to get to a place where we're able to access online sessions, for example. And do you know what? COVID's really changed that. I'm not sure exactly how it's changed here on the Isle of Man, but, mm. um, you know, COVID's really changed the fact that actually there's so many therapy services. I was working in one of them where you can speak to somebody on the phone and, you know, you can be in a in a in your kind of weekly therapy appointment without having to move because everyone um, everyone has that opportunity to maybe on the phone or a video call rather than um, rather than through having to actually go to a face to face appointment. Yeah, hundred percent. I know in general practice we have been able to offer people a lot more um, virtual consultations and um, often the feedback for that is quite negative and people say I just want to see someone face to face and that's fine like that's an option that's available um, but for a lot of people being able to have these remote consultations um, to be able to have a virtual consultation has really made a lot of things more accessible um, what would you say to someone that said I tried talking tried that before didn't work made me worse well, so that's really, you know, that's a really common experience for people. And my, my question would be, when when was that? What happened that time? Uh, and was it was it not the right time for you? Was it not the right person or the right place? Um, and how far along are you from that point where it didn't work? Because very often people access therapy at perhaps with the with the person that just doesn't suit them and we all know that we don't get along yeah. with everybody and then that's a no different in therapy sometimes you just don't click and actually a different therapist or a different professional is what you need but equally like um yeah i know i know when i've accessed therapy in the past i i just didn't think it was the right time for me personally i was like actually no this isn't the right time or the right place or person and then six months down the line actually accessing it was really beneficial mm. so it's 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 okay to have that experience um try again but change the variables i suppose like what can i what can i how can i access this differently this time because um and it, you know it, it's about trying to mix it up a little bit and then try again a bit later mm. uh, if you you know if you wanted to get physically stronger and you tried a particular sport actually and that didn't suit you and you didn't like it and it didn't make you particularly stronger it doesn't mean all sport isn't going to make you fitter and stronger actually what else can I try you know is there a different thing you know if it's not badminton can I try football can I try you know so it's a little bit so like I went for a jog once uh, didn't like it never going to do any exercise again (laughs) it's not like that yeah And, and sometimes that you know sometimes when it comes to exercise that might be about a shameful embarrassing experience it might be about how you feel about yourself on a, on a, a body image level or, or a personal value level mm. and that obviously makes things more complicated but if we just roll we have probably i've probably murdered this analogy a little bit but if you <laughs> if we just think about it in terms of like actually that was one that was this one time i had this experience and it wasn't very helpful what could i try to do differently that might be more helpful it's really interesting hearing you talk about um, accessing therapy when you're well as well and um, I've been quite vocal about my past experiences with mental health especially for this episode and something that I've learned along the way is you know quite often we access therapy when we're absolutely in the bin um, and that's a little bit like deciding that you're going to start jogging when you've broken both your legs you don't get an awful lot out of it and I do remember coming out of therapy sessions maybe with like one or two sentences left in my brain because my nothing was working particularly well and 
that sometimes accessing something when you're really not in a good place you can get a limited amount from whereas if you have the um, availability the, the opportunity to access therapy um, when you are well or when your problems are manageable but you want to increase your wellness and you want to increase your um, I guess your resilience um, that you can get so much more from it. Do you see a lot of well people accessing therapy? So in the services I've worked in, um, not so much. I've, I, no, not, that's not that's not been the case. I've probably worked in more sort of NHS settings, for example, where that's not really seen as an opportunity, but it absolutely should be. Um, and it, it doesn't always have to be therapy either. It could be a coach, it could be a mentor, it could be a, a supervisor. It doesn't have to be kind of structured psychological intervention. There's a whole range of things that it could be. It could even be like a... Um, an educational group around anxiety for example um, it could be a depression support group it doesn't have to be the very intensive kind of individual therapy all the time I suppose it can actually be this this whole spectrum of things such as guided self-help it could be an online learning uh, platform you know there's a whole a whole raft of things and actually all of us can look at our own mental health and think oh what do I need to make my mental health um, a step better in the next six months you know, and sometimes that's actually, I need to mix my daily routine up a bit. I need to refresh some things through to, I need that intensive psychological therapy uh, around anxiety or depression or a particular trauma, for example. Um, so it's it's about looking at your whole self and thinking about the bigger picture and thinking about what do I need right now at this stage, if, at this stage of my mental health, what would meet my needs and if we all asked ourselves that question regularly i think we'd probably all be in a better place mentally and um, in general though absolutely we need a more accessible quicker uh, opportunity to access therapy and also psychological support um, in the Isle of Man and, and it's a problem across in the UK as well all over the world this is something we're trying to do it's like how do we increase accessibility to psychological support both at a first aid level as well as uh, a trained professional mm. uh, or counselling or therapy approach as well. So we're back to Matt's um, chatting about when he said treat your treat your reception staff like you would your barber. I don't know if that's the right analogy really <laughs> but um, <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Wouldn't it be great if people accessed therapy talking therapy in the same way that they access beauty therapy or going to the barbers or hitting the gym when they're well to increase their strength you know it's like keep their well-being strong and increase that resilience and that mental strength and that would be a pretty good way to to work forwards right yeah absolutely and it, you know mental health is relevant to our school settings our home life and also our work life as well and our further educational setup as well you know it needs to be embedded across all those different aspects so wouldn't it be great if you could you know as, as part of your work there's a real focus on mental health actually it would benefit the employer it would certainly benefit the employee it would benefit the, the product or whatever you're working on as well um, but it needs to be embedded throughout and yeah it should be easy accessible um, and also less there should be less stigma attached to it um, let's talk about the fact that you know we've been to therapy or actually the fact that um, you know, this, this one time I, I accessed psychological support and, and reduced that stigma because there's a fear of like, I don't want to, 
you know you don't have to explain everything or why why you went to therapy but just being open about the fact that that's an option that you've taken i want to see bosses in in workplaces or employers saying yes i've accessed therapy before obviously if it has to be genuine but uh that openness and transparency can is a real sign of leadership as well um you need we need people to be able to say yeah i went to the barbers and yes i also have been to therapy at some point in my life um, for example, healthcare professionals, you know, the opportunity for healthcare professionals themselves to access therapy is really limited. And that's something we've got to change as well. Mm. You know, if anything, if we learn anything from the pandemic, I think people have had a bigger respect for or a greater respect for the pressure that healthcare professionals are under. Um, and then we need to think, well, actually, how much psychological support do our healthcare professionals get? Um, either through a kind of structured maybe supervision for example within work or outside of work in terms of the therapy so that was our topic dealing with depression Um, if you have any questions you can send them into bodywise at manxradio.com and next week we're going to be talking about dementia a difficult topic and one that has affected I think probably every family on the Isle of Man at some point in their lives I mean we're moving from one really quite highly charged emotional topic to another aren't we but um, they're both really important and I know they're things that we wanted to address and that other people maybe don't talk enough about so if you have any questions on the topics of dementia Kira, where can you send those you can send your questions into us uh, via email to bodywise at manxradio.com I'm Matt and I'm Kira and you're listening to Bodywise hey Moo. until next time we